you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, we're con- continuing our study there, and um, as I stated last week, um, we're going to look um, this morning at um, kind of the question of, is God really for me? Last week, we looked at the, the promise here in Romans chapter 8, that is, if God, if the, the big God of the universe is for you, then who can be against you? And we wanted to really nail down that promise and that premise. And so, this morning, I wanted to look, and, and I think the text takes us to ask the question and, ta- and answers that question of, well, what if I, it sure doesn't feel like God is for me. God being for me, a lot of times in my mind, feels a certain way. And I want to jump into this this morning, but I wanted to start off um, maybe in an unusual place, but I think it's a thing that a lot of us uh, maybe think about. And, you know, one of the things that I think about very often is how do non-believers find hope? Do you ever think about that? Sometimes it's a, as a believer, it's, it's difficult enough to find hope and preach to my own soul. And, and sometimes I wonder how non-believers find hope and was reminded of this earlier this week as Stephen Hawking's uh, the news came that he passed away and um, he is a uh, uh, was a brilliant man in some ways and in some ways not so brilliant but uh, he he did a lot for the field of science and um, was also one that didn't believe in God and, and so it was interesting as I was reading some things and listening to some things about him, and I want to read you just a couple of quotes. He said this, he said, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail, he told the Guardian. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Later on, he said this, God is the name people give to reason that we are here, he said. But I think that reason is the laws of physics rather than someone with whom we can have a personal relationship, an impersonal God. And lastly, the last quote that I want to give of his, he says this, Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see and wonder about what makes the universe exist, Hawking said of the meaning of life. Be curious, and however difficult life may seem, there's always something you can do and succeed at. And that may be easy for a brilliant man to put that forward, but I think about people who may have been born with some limitations, or, or people who may be born of in circumstances where, um, as he says, um, however difficult life may seem, there's always something you can succeed at. And we see by this man that the world has touted as brilliant, we see how foolish. And we see that when he looks at the world, he's not looking at the world rightly. He's not starting from the right place. That there is a God. There is a God who sent His Son. And if we have put our faith and our trust in Him, then we, have, we can have a personal relationship with Him. And therefore, there is meaning and there is purpose 
even in the midst of trials and persecution and hardships. Life is not meaningless and it's not left up to you or me to try to find something that we can succeed at to make ourselves feel good about our time here on this earth so that we won't go into utter despair when we truly think deeply about why we're here. So the Bible doesn't answer this question of is God for me and does God exist the same way that the world does. And last week, um, we, we talked about this big God and we talked about this big God that Paul says is for us. And I want to really hone in on this week and really kind of sit down next to some of you who may be going through struggles, maybe going through struggles such as sickness and that maybe you've been sick for a really long time and that God has not made you better. Maybe you have a spouse or a child or a friend who is an unbeliever that you have spent time in agony and in tears praying for their salvation. And at times you get into this aspect of despair because God has not saved them. Maybe you're in the midst of losing a house or losing a job or losing a spouse uh, due to divorce or due to illness and um, and you just ask the question sometimes where is God in the midst of this suffering in the midst of this pain does he really love me maybe there's a sin pattern in your life that you just so much want to get rid of but you just can't seem to to make it over over the edge of being able to just have victory over this sin pattern in your life and you just sometimes despair Maybe you're depressed or anxious or have some mental health issues. Does any of this sound familiar? This is the real world. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that these great verses were written in. And Paul was writing these to encourage us. But I think sometimes, sometimes... It always catches me by surprise, and maybe it's because of the way that I look at the Bible, but, but even just recently, I had someone uh, not affiliated with the church um, pull me aside and wanted to ask me about, um, a loaded question, right? Wanted, me to, wanted to ask me about predestination. I'm like, oh, okay. Do you have a minute was the first question. <laughs> but the heart of what they were asking me was this. It wasn't, I went in, I started into the, and they backed off real quickly. And what they really wanted to ask me was, am I really predestined? Can God, can I think I'm predestined? Can I think I'm elect? Can I think I'm chosen? Can I think I'm loved by God and really not be? And at the heart of that question was, life is hard. And it sure doesn't feel like at times that God is for me. The other side, I think, of this uh, Stephen Hawking's quote um, that I don't find very helpful either. And uh, I had two men uh, over the past three or four years who have come to me and they had adopted this mindset and they ended up in the same place. 
um, or they ended up in a, in a place of great despair. Uh, and, and I was listening to the radio this week and was reminded of this. And, um, and the radio program was talking about, um, are people against you right now? Are you going through a difficult time because there are people that are persecuting you and are against you? Well, the, the way that you come out of that is that God wants you to, um, God wants you to be happy and God wants you to do nice things for people. And if you do nice things for other people, then all of a sudden, it, it, they didn't use this language, but here's what was being said, is that God will be in your debt and then God will cause other people not to be mean to you anymore. And at some level, we find this nice and it's a formula. And there is, right? I mean, if you're a nice person, then people are probably going to be nicer to you. There's, there's some truth to that, right? Right? If you're a loving person, you're going to have people love you a little bit more than, than normal. But these two men that I, that, that I had met with different, at different times who both had bought into this and they had given um, kindness, they had given money, they had given everything and to serve into ministry. And at the end of the day, they still found themselves uh, persecuted and, and not with a lot of money, and they came to me suicidal because what they were saying is, God is not for me. I can't live any longer. God's not for me because he's not repaying what I'm paying in. So this morning, I think this verse, verse 31 in Romans 8 says some glorious truths that I want to unpack and then give us some, some real practical, hopeful, hopefully some real practical counsel. But, but, but I want to look at verse 31, and I hope that this verse just becomes a bedrock in your life. And, and so first, I want to see how verse 31, or 32, I'm sorry, fits with verse 31. So last week we looked at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Is God is for us, who is against us? And remember, we're asking the question, well, it sure feels like God is against us. Verse 32. The reason that we know that God is for us is because He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And so another way of saying this is that God is for us and that no one is against us. And we know this because God has given His Son for us. And if God has given His Son for us, how will He not give us all things? And so what we see here is that God delivered over Jesus to secure our hope, to secure our position with Him. That Jesus is the payment for that. And not only is He the payment for our salvation, but He's also the payment for the hope and the gifts and our security. And so I want to walk through and look at a couple of things here and bring them out. And, to, to, and I hope that this is as encouraging to you as it's been to me this week. And the first thing that I want to, I want to say, and I got this from uh, Derek Thomas. He has a little book written on Romans 8 called uh, The Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. But uh, he says this. He talks about the who's of verses 31 through 35. And I hadn't really noticed this before, but that as Paul, as he's talking about the difficulties in life, notice the, the who's in verse 31 through 35. So look at verse 31. 
Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? 34, who is the one who condemns? 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I think if we're going to adequately stand against the charges, against the... um, the weight that we feel when we're going through difficult things, we have to know who our enemy is. And I think one of the things that Paul is driving home here that we often miss in these verses is that when talking about our enemy, he's, Paul doesn't just talk about the what, but he talks about the who. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Listen to this quote from Ed Welch. Many of you have probably read some of his books or or writings, but he said this in an article on suffering. He says, your suffering is a great enticement to Satan. He and his anti-God federation are irresistibly attracted to persistent pain. Speaking when times are difficult. Then, when he, Satan, suggests that God does not love us, He suddenly sounds compelling. In other words, we need all our wits about us when suffering comes our way. And so one of the things that I think that this text tells us, these group of texts tells us, is that we have to know who our enemy is. And we have to be aware of the lies of Satan in the midst of our despair. That when suffering and when hardships come, that many times we hear the lies coming from the evil one and from the principalities, and these are the lies that are whispering in our ears, God is not for you. This does not mean that God doesn't cause or allow calamity, but it does mean that His design in the calamity is to draw us closer to Him. And that many times when we are listening to the evil one, everything in our bones wants to lean away from God. And that's the direct opposite of the design that God has for this. And I just want to say, just a side note this morning. Um, this week I got the pleasure to spend time with two families going through some very difficult things concerning their children. And it was just amazing to see God at work in these families' lives. And you could almost just, you, you could just trace the hand of God and the Holy Spirit kind of moving in. And these families kind of started in despair and ended in praise. And not necessarily because the circumstances got any better, but they really fell back onto the promises that God is for us. And whatever he is doing in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this this pain, we know that he's good. And they were quoting Bible verses. And that just made my heart glad and encouraged me. Because what happens many to many of us, what happens to me in many times is the tendency in the midst of suffering and pain and hardships is to blame God. Is to blame God and to believe the enemy's lies instead of leaning into him in his love for me and his um, kindness 
towards me. So number one, we have to know who our enemy is. And number two, I think what we see from this verse is that we almost know we must also know who our hero is. Look at the wording here in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Some of your translations here will say he who did not spare his very own son. The wording here in the Greek is very specific because it wants you to know that this just wasn't any son, but that what God did in in ransoming you and I, in making you and I as part of his family, if you've trusted in Christ, is that he did not spare his very own son. This Jesus, this king, preeminent king of the universe, this is the very own son that he is talking about. And there is nothing more valuable in the universe than God's son. Nothing. And what this text, what Paul is telling us, there is nothing more valuable than God's son. And this was the payment. This is what God did. And not only does this passage tell us that our our hero sent his very own son to ransom us, but also notice the, the other words here that I think that we look over a lot of times. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And this is an interesting word. Uh, In fact, in the next couple of weeks, as we look at the passion of Christ, as we talk about the Easter narrative when Jesus was uh, uh, going to the cross, uh, we will see this word delivered a lot. And just a few examples of this same word delivered in the passion uh, narrative would be that Judas uh, delivered Jesus over. He was delivered over to Pilate. Pilate delivered him over. Over and over we see that Jesus was delivered over. And so it was very interesting when Paul, as he is writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that God was the ultimate one who delivered him over. And we see in Isaiah 53.10 that not only did God deliver him over, but it tells us that God was pleased to crush him. And this is not a sadistic child abuser, cosmic child abuser that is sending over his son in some uh, perverse uh, situation because he likes seeing uh, bad things happen. This was the ultimate love displayed. The love of God willfully delivering over Jesus for your salvation and for mine so that he may bring many sons and daughters to glory so that he could adopt us into our family and then begin this process of conforming us to his son that will end up in us being glorified with him and enjoying him and glorifying him forever. Do you see the hero of the story? It's God and what God is at work doing. The next thing I want you to see um, from this text, and you can't see it in the normal reading of the text, but again, as we are reading here, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Some of your translations will say, 
how will he not surely also give us all things? And what we miss in the English reading of this text is that how will he not also surely, that there was meant in the text to be this emphatic tone, this declaration, this point of emphasis. And, and as I was thinking about this, um, when, when the boys, uh, and they probably are still this way, when the boys were young and they had to read out loud, all of their teachers always said, uh, you need to have them read with more emphasis. And so that was a trip. Um, uh, uh, you know, so the exclamation point, and then, you know, they would get, uh, th- they would get upset with us because we'd say, no, 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 read it with emphasis. There's an exclamation point, you know. Um, Hit the ball, you know, or whatever. But what's interesting, when we read this text, when we read this text, it is meant to be read with emphasis. It's meant to be read with expression that leads to hope that that we are to be amazed. We are to see the love of God. We are to see the cost to him and just be blown away. And so what we are to say is, how will he not also surely give us all things? Emphasis. A declaration. Next, not only is it to be emphatic, but notice the wording here where it talks about that he gives us all things. It says that he freely gives us all things. And I want to ask you, this is audience participation. Is there a word that you all can think of instead of that denotes freely give? Freely give us all things. Is there a word you can think of that we could put there? Starts with a G, ends with race. Grace, y'all are awesome. <laughs> yes, you like that? <laughs> I should have had a more dramatic pause there, right? <laughs> But as you look at this text and you see God freely gives us all things, we see the grace of God in this text. And I think that many times when we are in despair, one of the reasons, one of the things that Lewis gets into when he is in despair is what I'm going to call divine entitlement. You know what I mean by this? As an American... I have been given certain rights, unalienable rights, that I've been given by my Creator. And if you try to come across my rights, then I can harm you or whatever. Take you to court. And I think sometimes, sometimes we take this attitude as Americans to the Bible and we have this divine entitlement and so I am going to let you fill in the blank here. So when pain and hardships come, that many times, Lewis or many of us, we say, I don't blank this. I don't deserve this. And the key, as many of you know, we should be thankful that we don't get what we deserve. What we have to be careful of is trying to play this game with God. Because it's not a game that we win if we really want to change the rules and go from free grace to merit, we're all in trouble. And so we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful that He has freely given us all things. 
and that the key here is that none of us get what we deserve and that we need to be looking at what God freely gave us in salvation. And that in pain, in pain, when we begin to change our mindset here, in the midst of pain, we can rejoice for what God has freely and graciously done in our lives. Now, the next thing I want you to see, and I'm building and going to end with some uh, practical points. I know there's some practical points here, but I'm going to I'm going to hit more on that in a second. But the last thing um, that I want you to see here out of the text is that not only did he give us Jesus and for our and our salvation, but it says here, how will he not also with him freely give us all things now? We have to define what is meant by all things, and I think it's pretty easy by looking in the text what is meant by all things. The other reason when I say it's pretty easy to know what he means by all things is that we do not have a parking lot full of Ferraris, right? So we don't believe that all things means whatever kind of car you want to drive, whatever kind of house you want to live in, this sort of thing. Something else is meant by all things in this text. And it's pretty easy to see. And I want to look at the text, the chapter, and the Bible very briefly. But in this chapter, just in this context, uh, remember, where is the other place very close to this where the word all things is used? All things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. And so one of the things that we need to see when Paul is saying, how will He not give us all? All things that this in Romans 8 is in view. And so all things are ours because all things are serving us. Do you think about that? That when you were going through calamity and hardships, that these hardships aren't dominating over you, but they are serving you. And what I mean by serving you, they are making you more like Jesus. They are in control of the Creator and they're doing something. They're producing something. And so this all things, Romans 8, 28 is in view that all things are working together for our good. And that's one way to look at all things. Now, if we were to just take Romans chapter 8, I listed a couple of things that we get and that is secured um, by Christ in His death and resurrection. And I'm just going to name a few of them. In verse 1, one of the things, of the all things, is that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That one of the all things is that you are no longer condemned. There is no condemnation. In verse 4, one of the things is that you are declared righteous. So you get righteousness. Number 9, and this just blows our mind, literally sometimes, is that we get the Holy Spirit. That should lead to life and peace and should lead to us having the mind of the Spirit. In verse 11, it says that we get life to our mortal bodies. In verse 14, sonship, adoption into his family. Verse 17, it says all things, all things. We are heirs and heirs of God. Verse 18, glory. And then in verse 26, that even in our weakness, the Holy Spirit, we get help from him. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness all of these things are ours. And then, if you want your mind blown even more, which I'll try to blow, let the Bible blow your mind a little more, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
in verse 21 through 23. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And then in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Gary referenced this verse several weeks ago, and there's this mystery, this glorious mystery in this. In the introduction to the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All things, all things are yours. And I think the key here in looking at this all things, I think there are two keys here, and one is the hope of an inheritance. And when I say hope, remember, biblical hope is not like, I hope my team, who lost last night, I hope my team wins the tournament. Hope here is a sure thing. Put your hope in God. And so the two realities, one is the hope of heaven, the hope of the inheritance. This world is not meant to be our home. And when we get the biblical mindset, and when we understand that this world is not meant to be our home, then all of a sudden that helps us manage our expectations while we're here. How many times is the despair and the discomfort that we feel that can lead to the question, is God really for me, directly due to our expectations of what this world should be for us? In the Bible, over and over and over and over tells us that this world is not our home. And we should all be saying amen to that. And so one is that it, it tells of our... So, so, one re, so the two realities that these all things brings out, one is the hope of heaven, and one is the present reality of all things, which I've already mentioned, but I want to mention again, and that God is working all things for our good, that all things are serving us, and there's no greater gift in the world than the fact that God loves you, and this is not evidenced by your lack of suffering or your lack of hardships, but it's evidenced by Christ being delivered over to the cross on your behalf to secure the payment for you and your future. So, my goal this morning is to help boost your confidence in these truths. And um, there was a quote that uh, I thought was very relevant to where we're going from um, Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, In the old Pilgrim's Progress, I used to read in my grandfather's house, I remember the picture of Hopeful in the river holding Christian up. And the engraver has done it very well. Hopeful has his arm around Christian and lifts up his hands and says, Fear not, brother, I feel the bottom. That is just what Jesus does in our trials. He puts his arms around us and points up and says, Fear not, the water may be deep, but the bottom is good. You know, many times, uh, I can't get away in this text, um, and I think it's good for us to view it this way, 
um, and I know I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again, when we're looking at this text and when we're looking to find confidence and when we're looking to find assurance and when we're looking to find help and comfort in this text, we can't get away from the analogy of a parent. You know, uh, last night, I, know, I don't know what it was the Sunday that I preached before and used this analogy, but last night, Flannery was crying her head off at 11 or so. And what she said would calm her down was cake. If we let her be in control of her life, she would have diabetes, at least. (laughs) And it's the same way in the economy of God, folks. Right, brothers and sisters? It's that God knows best. The ground is sure. The water may seem deep, but the ground is sure because God is sure. I also mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and I want to mention again the uh, Timothy Keller quote that he, where he said that if we knew everything that God knew, he would answer our prayers the exact same way. So he is not punitive and cruel, but he is good and he is working for us. Now, I want to look at just a couple of practical insights here. And... Uh, to leave you with and to hopefully to encourage you with. And, um, you know, one of the things that Ed Welch also said in his article that I thought was good and that we needed to hear is that suffering impairs our vision. Suffering impairs our vision. Pain impairs our vision. And if you need an illustration of this, I can have one of you come up and I will kick you in your knee as hard as I can And, no, Caleb, I'm not going to really kick you in the knee. But, (laughs) thank you for your eagerness. Um, But what would happen is if you get, if you're in a lot of pain, guess what you're focused on? Your pain. For, For anybody involved in kind of counseling or helping people, one of the most difficult things is to get someone to, to not fixate on the pain that's going on in their life. But, but to broaden their vision, to see other options, to see hope outside of that pain and that turmoil that they're going on to. Because human nature in us is that we focus on pain. And so when we have suffering in our life, it impairs our vision. And it's hard to see God's promises. And we are called as Christians to walk by what? Faith. And not by sight. And so when we see pain... We've got to figure out how do I walk by faith and not by sight when it hurts. And I want to give you three things. Three things to place your gaze. Three, th- three ways to be able to walk by faith. And the first, and you see all these things you've seen in this text, hopefully. And the first is this, is that we need to look back to the cross. We need to look back to the cross And be assured of the love that God has for us. So much so that he gave his son to secure your sonship or your daughtership um, into his family. We need to look back to the cross. He did this for you. 
we need to look back also and see the cross and, and see that Jesus was also a man of sorrows. A man who was tempted, a man who was tried. A man whom the evil one also tried to railroad in the wilderness. And we need to see a suffering Savior who cares for us. So we need to look back to the cross and we need to see the, cro- see the cost. And, and I would say a helpful tool to do here is for believers is for us to meditate on the cross. There are often times that I will ask people to look at the passion narrative in one of the Gospels and just meditate on the Gospel narrative and to remind themselves constantly in the passion narrative that God did this for me. And you'd be amazed at what that the clouds that begin to break when we see the love of God for us by looking back at the cross. Not only do we look back at the cross, but we look to what is promised ahead. And we need to be thankful that we are not hoping in this world. This world um, full of pain and suffering where many times the unrighteous win and God's faithful seem to lose, we need to remind ourselves by looking into the future of the inheritance that God has for us. And we need to see this and we need to know that these are the plans that God has, Jesus has gone. If he has gone, he's gone and he's prepared a place for you. And that not only has he prepared a place for you, but that where he is one day, you will be with him. So we need to focus on the past in the cross. We need to focus on our future of what's ahead. And then also, lastly, we need to look at what he has given us. And I want to talk about this in three ways as we close. The first thing is this. We need to know and believe and to gain strength and power from the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's missing in many evangelicals' lives is a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit as the great what? Comforter. And so what I want to ask is, as you're going through a difficult time, do you pray to God and ask Him to comfort you with His Spirit? Do you spend time in prayer saying, God, I need Your Spirit. I need to be filled with Your Spirit. I need to be overwhelmed with Your Spirit. Do we really believe, Romans 8, 26, that in the time of our weakness, that the Spirit also helps us? The second thing that he's given us that we need to look to, and and we need all of these, we can't just do one, we need all of them, but we also need to look to the Holy Bible. And I have challenged many people with this, and I haven't had one person take me up on this the way that they need to, and that is, is that if you are in a time of great despair, you need to get alone with the Word of God and not get up from your study until the promises of God have sunken into your soul, because you are going to be at great danger if you go throughout your day unprepared. And we need to read the Bible in a certain way as well. We need to 
read the Bible as the miraculous book that it is. We need to memorize the promises in the Bible. We need to pray the promises in the Bible. But ultimately, the other thing that we need to do is that I don't think we can see the Bible correctly unless we're asking God as we open up his word to reveal to our hearts the truths of his word. The Pharisees knew the Bible really well and it didn't help them. We need to be reminded of that. And the last thing, and I I did the uh, nice alliteration Bible thing here, Holy Spirit, Holy Bible, and Holy Communion with saints. Relationships are vital. (laughs) You need to have someone in your life that is going to be praying for you, with you, telling you Scripture, rebuking you when you need to be rebuked, loving you enough that in the midst of your suffering to tell you that you've bought into some of this um, uh, divine entitlement and that they will lovingly walk in that with you. And if you're in the midst of that right now, you need to find a good godly man or woman to do that with. If you're not in the midst of it, you need to find a good or godly man or woman to do this with because you will be at some point. And it's easier to enter into these relationships if you already have them. I just want to close and uh, just to remind us of the truth here that God is for you and that you may have come in this morning suffering and I want you to know that God is for you and this is evidenced not by the fact that He's taken the suffering away necessarily and we want to pray for that and God does that. There was a a man from Crossroads this week that I got a text message that he, uh, we, I prayed with him last Sunday. He was going to Vanderbilt. He's had brain uh, cancer and there were more lesions on his brain and he was going to go have surgery and it wasn't looking good and he showed up at Vanderbilt and they were gone. Gone. God does it. I think that's why sometimes we despair when God doesn't do it. <laughs> we don't know the mind of God at all times. And so some of you may be in here this morning and you may be in despair and you need to continue to pray for your healing. You need to continue to pray for the hardships to be gone. But we also need to be praying that God would reveal to you His love for you through the death of His Son and by the procurement of all things have been given to those who are loved by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Romans chapter 8. God, I pray that this chapter would just change the life of our church. God, I pray that you would use these words to do something in us to make us humble, bold, loving people who encourage one another, who push each other back to the Word, who trust in the Spirit's work in our lives who know that all things are working for our good. God, I pray that we would be this kind of people. And this is only through the gift of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would please.